Hello, hello. This is no big deal. Today's conversation is with filmmaker Manfred Kirchheimer. Manny has been quietly making masterpieces of documentary cinema for the last 60 or so years until around 2013 when my colleague Jake Perlin reached out to him. Jake and I run Cinema Conservancy, a nonprofit where, among other things, we restore and re release forgotten American independent films. And so Jake tracked down Manny because he remembered a bootleg tape he used to watch with friends as a teenager growing up in Great Neck, New York. The tape was Manny's film Stations of the Elevated, the first ever graffiti film of any notable length. It was shot in 1978 when there was a veritable war on graffiti mounted by Mayor Koch and the city was blaming its presence for the peak crime rates at the time. We take for granted its mainstream acceptance these days, but back then, Koch said if he had it his way, he'd sick wolves on the graffiti writers, and many shared the sentiment. But in a grant application, for which he was granted a substantial portion of the budget, Manny described graffiti as a scream from the ghetto. He saw art where others saw nuisance, and with the stations, he asks the question of who exactly is permitted to paint the city and who isn't and he does so by juxtaposing the graffiti against the gregarious painted billboards of the day. Stations premiered at the New York Film Festival in 1981, but then promptly disappeared. It circulated as a shoddy-looking VHS tape for years until 2014 when we brought it to the BAM Harvey. For those who don't know, the Harvey is a gorgeous old 850-seat theater, and there we gave it a sort of re-premiere. With donations from Agnes B., the School of Visual Arts in New York, the Devon Wood Foundation, and our founder, Tyler Brody, we were able to clear the soundtrack of Charles Mingus and Aretha Franklin music and give the film the comeback it deserved. A New York Times feature about Manny followed, as well as a retrospective of his work at the Museum of Modern Art, and it seemed finally Manny was getting his due. Most artists in his position have to die for this to happen, but Manny is far from it. He currently has four films in the works, and you'll note that at the ripe age of 88, just two years into retirement from teaching, he doesn't miss a beat in the conversation. The day after we spoke, I watched a rough cut of Manny's latest film, which I think is probably his best to date. It's an ode to the way we used to spend our leisure time, interacting with one another instead of a device. That alone is enough to make one a little wistful, but what's more is there are countless moments of humanity captured in this film that you just have to see to believe. It's comprised of perfectly preserved footage he shot in the late 50s, and for that it's a real-time machine. Something special happens when you watch footage from that long ago of people just being themselves on film, which is so well-preserved it looks like it was shot yesterday. There's really nothing else like it. I could definitely go on, but best to let the man speak for himself. Here's my conversation with Manny Kirschheimer. Middle Class Money, honey. Really? That's the new one? That's my latest. What is it about? It's, it's a feature film, and it's about people and their relationship to money. Mm-hmm. You know, 
What's what's your relationship to money? <laughs> I don't have much. <laughs> Despite this beautiful apartment, this which is, is a hell of rent an controlled. I it would have to be. I I don't know who could afford to live in this otherwise. I know. It's really a gem, though. I know. And what happened was that. Uh, when I retired, uh, the uh, president gave me a, a pension of half my salary. The president of SBA? Yeah. Wow. Half my salary, which is, I, I haven't heard anybody else get that. Right. Right? Yeah. So that allows me to stay in this apartment. Sure. Uh, otherwise, I would have, I, I put into the super. Uh, for another apartment in this building, a smaller one. Mm -hmm. But then I retracted it. Yeah. Once you realize I can just get by now. Yep. Okay. So, I wonder if we could start. You know, I know a bit of your history, but only so much. And for the sake of the listener, I wonder if you would mind just kind of walking through your childhood quickly, how you arrived to America and, and all that. Right. I was born in Saarbrücken, Germany. Mm -hmm. And in 1935, there was a plebiscite about Saarbrücken, well, the Tsar region. Mm -hmm. You know, there are like 12 or 14 regions in Germany. Uh -huh. You know, Prussia, Hessian. Um, and the Tsar region was under the administration of France after World War I. And then there was a plebiscite in 1935 about where it should go. Mm -hmm. And it went overwhelmingly for Germany. It meant that the Nazis could move right into our area, which they weren't allowed to do before that, yeah. because it was under France's jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. uh, so there were Nazi parades and everything, but there was a, what was called a Roman agreement, which gave, which meant that they didn't really take over for a year okay. after the plebiscite. Mm -hmm. And it's during that year that my dad made preparations Okay. to leave. And as far as I know, so did everybody else, all the other Jews in the Tsar region. Yeah. There were 2,000 of us, I believe. Okay. And most went to France. Mm. Some went to Luxembourg. A few went to England. Those that went to France and Luxembourg were screwed, of course. Yeah. They were in, in big danger. Yeah. Um, those that could get into the States got into the States, as we did. Mm -hmm. And our, uh, my uncles, uh, who were here, saw to it that we'd have an apartment when we arrived. Wow. Okay. And so my p parents made, immediately, made immediate plans to uh, leave. Really? And go to America and in hearing 1936. The news. Yes. Okay. We were early birds. And that's because he had two brothers who were already here. Okay. Not he, for um, political reasons. Okay. They're, Your dad's brothers were here. My dad's brothers. Okay. So they saw to it that we got a visa. 
which was very hard to get back then. Yeah, what luck. So then we came to America in April 1936 mm -hmm. and uh, lived in Marble Hill, which is at the end of Manhattan uh -huh. for six years before we moved to Washington Heights. Okay. And then I had a wonderful childhood in Washington Heights. I mean, a big Jewish community there at the time. Well, we, yes. It, it uh, was a big Jewish community, German-Jewish, mm -hmm. you know, Lanzmann. Yeah. And um, we would play outdoor games all day long. And I'm thinking about the outdoor games because uh, in my latest film, the one that I'm working on right now, mm -hmm. which I'm temporarily calling Pastimes, mm -hmm. um, there are stickball sequences uh. and skelzy sequences. You know what skelzy is? No, I it's don't. a it's a uh, a street game where you make boxes with chalk and you you number them and you have to go from one to whatever, uh, hitting uh, bottle caps. Ah, okay. You're flicking the bottle cap and trying to get to yeah, nine yeah, or ten without yeah, going Yeah, yeah, trying to get to the goal. Uh-huh. Right. And these were things that were done every day. Right. <clears throat> um, and nowadays there, there are no street games because everybody's on their cell phone. That's right. So I'm uh, using this old material to uh, show this stuff. When did you shoot that stuff? Between 57 and, and 60. And so... You've just got the stuff this. is sixty years old. Yeah, but it's in perfect condition because you take care of your it film. It is. It yep. is. It is in perfect condition, just like Dream of a City was. Right. Right. Oh my gosh, this right. is exciting. <laughs> so we would go out and play street games every day. There were six or seven different kind of street games. Yeah. And, uh, and we would always meet our friends. You know, or even if they weren't friends, you know, they would we would all play together right. all the time. In the meantime, I had lovely parents. I was a real lucky kid. Yeah. And uh, I went to George Washington High School, which was the neighborhood high school. And from there, I went to City College. And did you experience anti-Semitism here in those years? Uh, a little bit. They would, you know what I, I experienced more anti-Germanness. Mm. They were, you know, they called me a Heine. Mm. They called me anti-German names. I don't remember them um, being anti-Semitic. Uh -huh. And they may have been, but they, it didn't come out. Sure. What was uh, more important to them was that you were from Germany. That's I was from Germany. Yeah. yeah. Do you, but you didn't get beat up or anything. It was no. just, okay. No. Yeah, just some razzing. No, I played with the local kids. Sure, they just were razzing you. Yeah, up there, they were Irish. Okay. In, in Marble Hill. Yeah. And we moved to Washington Heights, of course, to be with more Jews. Yeah. Uh, even though that was an unusual phenomenon, in Germany, there weren't pockets of Jews. We were completely assimilated. Right. And here, uh, we looked for each other. Uh huh. Sure. Yeah, this is how these neighborhoods came to be in New York, right? In this way, you you That's looked right. for your people, your tribe, when you got here, right? Right. Yeah. And and we created 
synagogues. Mm-hmm. I think there were 13 in Washington Heights at one point wow. at, the, at the height of the immigration. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so in college, which I went to thinking I would be, I would major in chemistry. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, yeah. But the first time I went into that chem lab, the smells of it defeated me. Wow. And I said, gee, this is not really for me. And I had, oh, I mustn't leave out the fact that when my grandfather died when I was 12 years old, he was an Orthodox Jew. My family wasn't. My mm. family was somewhat observant, but they were conservative. Okay. And so that means that I didn't really have to follow any rules except, you know, lay off roller skating on, on the Sabbath or something like that. Sure. And when, I, when he died, I immediately that day became Orthodox. Really? Because he was, yeah, I felt something was lost if I wouldn't keep it up. Okay, yeah. So my whole teenage, from 12 to 20, I was Orthodox. I would do the prayers three times a day. I'd go to synagogue every morning if I could before I went to school. Um, and I, I, I converted my mother to kosher wow. in the house. Yeah. yeah. And that was for the sheer uh, attempt at not losing a tradition. Yes. And you, it's amazing that you would have the maturity and the foresight to be thinking that way at 12 well, years old. Yeah. That's <laughs> something. Yes. I, I, I guess I did. Mm-hmm. And I know my parents respected me for it. Yeah. It's a big and, decision. And they were wonderful parents. They went along with it. I mean, I once caught my father in the refrigerator doing something not kosher. Yeah. And I chewed him out like crazy. Yeah. You know, and, and it, you know, I was I was the boss of the house yeah. in that regard. Yeah. It's interesting <laughs> to in your adolescence giving your parents a tough time about something yeah. usually is not It's usually the other to be way more around. yeah, it's conservatively yeah. religious. That's something. Yeah. Wow. So then I went to City College mm-hmm. and after I abandoned chemistry there, there was, at one point at City College, the whole college kids went out on strike. Mm-hmm. And they were striking against an anti-Semitic professor and an anti-Negro professor, okay. Knickerbocker and Davis. Okay. And uh, so I came to school that day, and they had, students had ringed the the school yeah they were walking slowly and I noticed somebody taking with a with an a filmo camera I didn't know it was that at the time uh-huh. shooting oh sorry that's all right shooting uh the back of a horse with a cop on it and I went over to him I said what are you doing that for and he said oh for the film department and I didn't know there was a film department Mm-hmm. But that really piqued my interest. Yeah. You know. What was so, it about it that, that piqued your interest? Well, I hadn't had a major yet. Uh-huh. 
this was in in 49 it was within the my first year there mm -hmm. and i hadn't had a major so i was sort of looking for a major and my dad had always taken lovely still photographs black and white and i always admired them and the four brothers he had three brothers and all of them were camera nuts mm. so i and one of them worked in a film lab so in germany yeah so i always had a romance about about film even though i never took it personally mm -hmm. and so when when i heard that there was a film school i told my parents about that uh-huh and they said well why don't you find out if there are any opportunities in film yeah so i trudged across this across amsterdam to army hall <coughs> the basement of which was occupied by the film department sure you know very primitive yeah and the head of it is Hans Richter, who was a former Dadaist and who was making experimental films here. And he had just made a film called Dreams That Money Can Buy. Okay. <laughs> so I went to see him and I uh, had an interview and I said, Professor Richter, are there any opportunities in film he says yeah opportunities there are many but no jobs <laughs> <laughs> but he was wrong because there were plenty of opportunities but i mean plenty of jobs there were plenty of yeah, jobs yeah you worked in but film very for years. few opportunities uh-huh yeah you know and uh but anyway so i joined i i, I took film courses yeah and that was such a happy time. I mean, first of all, he was the funniest and most lively teacher. Yeah. And then there were people like Lou Jacobs, Sidney Myers, uh, uh, and, and, and others. A guy called Knight was his last name. And um, it was a real nice department. Mm -hmm. It was primitive, they didn't have much equipment. And uh, the it was it was run. You know, it was an improvised department. I don't think anybody knew what they were teaching. Yeah. And uh, but they taught off the cuff, and so I, that's how I got into film, right? And I graduated, uh, and I became great friends with Richter. Uh -huh. He made me his pet, and. I was the head of the uh, film society, and and I would make posters that he admired, and uh, which was, you know, which I'd gotten off my father, who was a commercial artist. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so you know, I watched him make posters and things, and yeah. So I was able to do it as well. And so you were pretty fearless in diving into all this, would you say? Do you, you had you didn't have many inhibitions. Well, I wouldn't call myself fearless if they were crap courses. Okay. You know, yeah. I mean, it was, I wasn't a very good student. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of taking film and watching films, you know, sure. and writing little essays on what I'd seen 
was a piece of cake. Yeah. And uh, and then I became the head of the audiovisual division, and I would take projectors around and project. Yeah. And and uh, so then I, you know, and I was also the head of the concert bureau there. So I really you took did, over. You dove in, yeah. I dove in. Did, and did you consider yourself an artist at that time no. or a technician or neither? Neither. Mm-hmm. I consider myself a bad student and I would go out and try to get a job in film. Okay. That's all. And you did. And I did. When I, after I graduated, I went out and in the first week got a job <laughs> um, at a place called MPO. It, it was a really good job. Editing? Well, back then you didn't start in editing. You started in the stock room. Sure. Okay. Yeah. You know, Just I mean, that's I was a projectionist, uh-huh. and I was doing stock and shipments, and um, and I was inspecting films. As they ordered them and they came in from the lab, I would screen them, make sure everything was all right. Okay. Yeah. So real. So the editing. Course. Happened a year and a half later. It took me a year and a half to become an editor. Okay, and then you did that for a while. But where in here did you say, "I have something to say with film"? I'm an I'm an artist, and I'm going to make a film. Well, I didn't consider myself an artist in the beginning. Okay, you know. Yeah. I mean, I now after all these years, I guess I'm an artist. Because it's such but a technical I, I craft. We can look at ourselves as technicians for so long. Right, right. And, and I did. Yeah. I did. And I wrote this script, which was only for myself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, with the intention of making it, I suppose. But I never got around to it. Anyway, I spent three years in that commercial place and then left for other jobs. And I went freelance. Yeah. So then I went on to other jobs, but I had begun to realize that whatever job I do, they're going to fuck it up. Mm. You know, I mean, the editor's lot, especially the documentary editor, I suppose, is a tough one because he's given, I was given, masses of material and I was told, make make a movie out of it. Yeah. Right? Came without a script most of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, because the directors would go out with the cameramen on a job and they would just shoot away. Wow. They'd shoot everything. They, yeah. They'd, you know, it was the um, vacuum cleaner. Uh, approach. Approach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And. Garbage collector. Yeah. Yeah. And then they'd bring it home and I'm, you know. So then, I always saw a film mm. in it. Yeah. And, and when the rough cut came around, I would show them the rough cut. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they would take it over. Then they'd understand the film. Yeah. And the bosses would take it over and ruin it. Right. Right, wouldn't let me follow through on my ideas. Yeah. So this happened time and again. Uh, let me backtrack a little. Sure. The um, material I was given was silent material. Mm-hmm. Right? And um, so, 
Now, what was I going to say about the silent material? Right. So that when we showed it to the bosses, we showed it silent back then. Yeah, right. Right nowadays, you can't do anything without sound. Because, right, right. Right. But back then, we showed it silent, and they often didn't catch on, and we would improvise the narration, which hadn't been written yet. Sure. You know, Just so that you'd have something to go fill by. Fill in the blanks for him. Right. Yeah. Anyway, this happened again and again and again. I mean, I, I edited over 200 films. And well, there are only about three of them that I'd show you. Uh-huh. In which I was left alone. Yeah. Which I did, was able to do some work. But um, most of it is crap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, and this was for CBS and for NBC and for ABC. Back then there was no Fox. Yeah. And uh, so... So w w was it born out of that frustration a little bit? Of yes, saying I, absolutely. Yeah, I need to absolutely. be left alone. I'm making I became my own a teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time that I was working in the industry, I taught at night. Yeah. And at the same time, I started to write. Mm -hmm. And uh, by 1956, Seven, and I got out of school in 1952. Mm -hmm. So in 1957, uh, my friend Walter Hess and I uh, began to shoot Claw. Yeah, it was going to be Claw, but it wasn't meant to be Claw. It was called Dream of a City. Really, and it was for a feature film for which I had written the script which was over two hours long. And we, we couldn't find a, a way to edit it together. So in 1963, we both determined we were going to take the summer off. Uh -huh. And someone had loaned us uh, an editing room with a moviola, with two moviolas, one for him and one for me. Mm -hmm. And we worked I don't know, for 10 weeks or so, and I made a sequence, and, uh, but mostly we talked. Sure. And it didn't work out. He wasn't able to do anything. Okay. And so then after that summer, I said, look, Walter, yeah, after that summer, I decided to make a film of my own, mm -hmm. which was Colossus on the River. Okay. Right? I'd go out shooting early in the morning before work. <laughs> when the ship came in, I'd be there at 6 o'clock, either on a camera. ferry boat or, or uh, on a tug or at the pier or wherever, and I would shoot, and then I'd, I'd eat at 8 o'clock when the ship docked, yep. and then I'd go to work at 9. Okay. And... Right, and I made this 15-minute film. And then for my next film, I figured, I went to Walter and I said, look, this isn't working out between us. Let's use this material. By now we had 45,000 16-millimeter feet of material. Oh. Let's use it as grab bag. You uh -huh. take what you need, I take what I need. We make our own movies out of it. And he agreed to that. <laughs> so then I made Claw. Okay. But he never went back to the material. Okay. And that material now, the what was 
there became Dream of a City. That's right. Last year. And, and that's right. And over 60 years later. That's right. Wow. The For Claw, which is a half hour film, mm-hmm. I selected 6,000 of those 45 feet. Yeah. 1,000 feet. And then I used it in then Bridge High. Mm-hmm. A 10 minute film was from that material. Okay, yeah. Right? And then I have a sequence in We Were So Beloved. Right? And then I have a sequence in We Did You See Tall? Yes. Well, you know that fast sequence of the buildings and oh, everything, yeah. right? So I use that. Okay. So this is wow. the sixth film that I'm using that material in. Wow. So the that, sixth film. Yeah. Wow. And uh, I don't think I'm going to use it anymore yeah. after this. Yeah. But um, in any case, in between, I always made other films, right? Yeah. Oh, you want me to say that again? No. Um, oh, good. So I always made other films. I made We Were So Beloved. I made Short Circuit. Yeah. Uh, I made um, Stations of the Elevated. Can we talk about Short Circuit for a minute? Um, sure. That, that was, what year did you sh- shoot that? Um, it was finished in 1972. I think I shot it in 70. And on your mind already was gentrification in New York City, which is... A well, never-ending yes. theme, but I'm curious what inspired well, but the that th- in the moment. The theme is really about blacks and whites. Yeah. Right? And I had read um, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, that's a film. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it still hasn't been made. No. So I thought about it, and I said to myself, you know, I can't make that film. A black person has to make that film. Yeah. And so I thought about the kind of film I would make, and then that's how Short Circuit came about. I did it from the point of view of a white filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so anyway, gradually, while I was working in the industry until 1976, I would take time, either time off or time off was imposed on me by my not getting a freelance job, or uh, I simply took time off. Yeah. And with my own money, I didn't get a grant until stations of stations. Yeah. And with my own money, I would make these films. And what, as you're investing your own money and your free time into these, what was the end game in your mind, or was there not one? No, my end game was always to make a new film. Yep. And it was expensive because it was film. Yeah. It's not like today. No. You know, today I make a film with my crew, which doesn't get paid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which you know they're they're old students, and although I did pay them on the last one because okay. I got money from from uh, what do you call Sundance? And Sundance, yeah, yeah, yeah. I paid them with that money, and That's... but now on my new film in July, I uh, won't be able to pay them yet. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> so with 
once I don't pay them, I have my editing equipment and I'm uh, and I sit there and I do and I edit. So the yeah. only thing I pay for is their food, sure, the shipping of equipment, and um, a little bit of post. Uh, and post the the um, uh, mix, yeah, DCP and stuff like that. Right. So I make these films for under ten thousand. Yeah, these feature films. Anyway, so gradually, I began to make films whenever I can, whenever I had a little bit of money, to my uh, wife's regret. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and. Uh, and I would make them very slowly. Yeah. I mean, from 19, 1960, 1957, And since then, I've made another eight. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I wanted to ask you about that, actually, this explosion, uh, this... Yeah. How prolific, prolific you've been in these last ten yes. years, even. And Do it's you, all because of tape. I mean, yeah. because of... of uh, digital. Digital. It's all okay. because of digital. Yeah. Yeah, you're not a, you're not a purist when it comes to film. You're done Not at it. all. I yeah. love tape. Yeah. I think tape is wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I worry about the dis different systems. Sure. The fact that they go go away and then you have to, you know, transfer. And, that it's so transient. You know. yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so transient. Yeah. I worry about that. Sure. But in terms of working and and getting beauty, I mean, especially now with 4K, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm, anyway, in any case, it's yeah. allowed me to make all these films in this short period of time. Right. Right. Eight films in, in uh, since uh, 2004 is in 15 years. Wow. Uh, which, you know, and now I'm going to uh, embark on a ninth in July. Okay. So I, I really appreciate uh -huh. the ability to do this. Do you... How have you felt about the attention you've gotten in the last several years since the station's release and the New York Times feature and all that? Did, did you ever feel like it was about damn time that you got noticed? Well, I, people have said that, but I, I'm just so glad. I'm just so happy that, you know, I mean, I've gotten these wonderful reviews. Yeah. And it's been theatrical. Mm-hmm. And of course, Jake has a lot to do with that. Yeah, I mean, Jake, in a way, discovered me when he when he made that call and asked about stations. Yeah, back in two thousand thirteen or something like that. Yeah, can we let's talk about stations for a minute? That am I right in saying is that as far as we know, that is the first filmed document of graffiti in New York City? Well, it's the first. When I, when I thought I would make that film, I went to the library and I looked up and there was um, a 10 minute film about graffiti uh -huh. at the time. Okay. 
that nobody's ever heard of before or since. Yep. So I decided to go ahead, and I made a three-quarters of an hour film. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, and then the films that came after that, Wild Style and, uh, what's the other one? They, they came shortly, three years later. Mm-hmm. Wild Style mm. and... And another it's one. It's going to drive us nuts. Yeah, but Charlie Ahern's Wild Style. Right. Yeah. And then the other one. Oh, my God. Yeah. But it'll come to me. Yeah. Anyway, they saw my film. They uh-huh. had called me at the time saying, can I borrow a copy? You know, and they did. And they saw it. And they, their films were longer and they were hits. Sure. You know, and my film which was in the New York Film Festival in 1981, but it was sort of forgotten, except by the writers yeah. themselves. Well, in, uh, by the graffiti writers themselves, yes. yeah. Well, in the, because the, wasn't it that the journalist who was supposed to review the film didn't make it to the yeah. film, right? Yeah. yeah, got stuck at a cocktail Janet party. Janet Maslin <laughs> got, no, no, she had another martini, I, I understood. Okay. I mean, you know, she didn't come for the press screening. Yeah. So she reviewed the film that mine was paired with, which was an Errol Morris film. Okay, yeah. And, was it Gates uh, of Heaven? And then there was just a little line saying it played with Stations of the Elevated. Yeah. In the Times. Was, was it Gates of Heaven that it screened with? No, no. It okay. was his first film about, um, I don't know. Yeah, about the pet cemetery, right? The yeah, gates of heaven. Yeah, isn't it? Cool? No, it wasn't the pet cemetery. Oh, okay. It was. It was people who do crazy things like uh, mm. chase turkeys and and okay. and and collect rocks okay. and think they're going to grow and sure. stuff like ah, that. Ah, okay, sure. I forgot the name. Yeah, I can't remember. Um, so, were you? How, how did you feel about that? You you made this. Film. Well, first of all, oh, I, I was terribly disappointed. Yeah, I was fifty years old, which I considered very old mm. at the time. Now I consider it young, <laughs> but at the time, and I said, "This is my big breakthrough film." Yeah, and it didn't get reviewed, and uh, so I was, and it didn't get reviewed in Time Magazine either, which reviewed every film except Stations. Hmm. So, in other words, there were 31 films that year, and Time reviewed 30 of them. So I was miserable. Yeah. I was absolutely miserable. Yeah. And then over the years, it got shown here and there. Mm -hmm. Nothing big. You know, until uh, 2014, after Jake came along. Yeah. We screened it at the Bam Harvey and got right. the Mingus Band and made right. banged down the drum. Yeah, right. So eight hundred and fifty seater, <laughs> and then a week later it played for a week at Bam. Right. Yeah, it was something. So, were you? How did you get back into it after that? And were you must have been? Oh, and nothing. It didn't stop me. Okay. It didn't stop me. I went on to my next film, which was We Were So Beloved, uh-huh. which was a film I always wanted to make Yeah, and uh, didn't get funding for, but I got funding for that one. I got some funding. 
So I started that <coughs> uh, in 1982. And this is the film about the the German the Jewish refugees. Migration. It was a yeah. Two and a half hour film. Uh huh. I'm I'm not looking at text messages and pulling up my notes for the interview, so I don't okay. forget to ask you important questions. Right. <laughs> anyway, just to go, just to finish up. Yeah. The uh, idea of sliding into making my own films. Uh huh. I began more and more to make my own films, and then I became a teacher, and gave up. Um, the industry, and in 1976. And because I went into teaching, I had summers off, and I had Christmas off for uh, almost three weeks. Right. And uh, I only taught three days a week. So I had those days off. So now I had more time to make movies. Yeah. Not more money, right? You know, I mean, I I I was working on film until two thousand four, which was deep into digital, right? And but I had started Tall. Tall was my toughest film. Mm -hmm. Took me fifteen years. Wow. Uh, because I I kept starting the wrong way. I kept. Um, it just took you a while it, to find it. it, it I, I just couldn't, couldn't get a handle on it. What do you do when, when that happens, when you are well, lost? Well, you, you brood and you say, I'm going <laughs> to give it up for a year, or you say, I say, um, uh, I'm, I'm going to use a portion of it and discard the other portion or whatever, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> but I always go back to it. Yeah. Do you think that my friends and I talk a lot about, you know, this, our generation and the one right behind us, they seem to feel it's their right to be an artist and that the world should sort of accommodate their ability to write on the cave wall instead of going out and hunting for food. And I'm wondering how you see that, if, if you think being an artist is is a right or if it's a privilege or neither <laughs> well you gotta have courage mm -hmm. well but they're not lacking in that there's 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 no ego inhibition in these in the newer generations and they well how do they get their money that's a good question well like you say you know we've talked about digital being so cheap yeah but you gotta live cheaper. I mean mm -hmm. I I and I don't think anybody owes anybody anything. I think you just have to make your way one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah, we see it. We see it a little differently right now because we're seeing people who literally are are taking welfare and, and food stamps because they've chosen to take the job that doesn't pay and the low hours per week because they believe they deserve to be an artist and they believe that gives something back to society that's as valid as if they were to go work at the water department uh, or do local politics or something and and so we're just trying kind of wrestling with with that idea 
of uh, the selfishness of the artist, I suppose. Well, I, I guess you could call it selfishness. I, I call it courage. Yeah. You know, if somebody's going to go down to Austin and say, I'm, I'm going to be a musician, mm -hmm. <clears throat> that takes courage. That takes guts. That's true. Now, it may also, you could also say, well, you're misleading yourself. You're, you're kidding yourself. Yeah. Because you haven't shown anything yet. Right. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> um, uh, earlier you talked about that there were games in the street that were played every day, and now people are just on their cell phones. What do you think we're missing because we spend so much time in our phones? Well, I, I think that cell phones are a real plague mm -hmm. I have a dumb phone myself yeah which uh, I use only really to call my wife yeah when she wants to know if I'm coming home late or not sure um, I think cell phones are a plague because if you go in the subway you look opposite the row and everybody's on their cell phone and what they're doing after work or whenever is they're either playing games or they're reading their messages now they they used to religious people used to read the bible in the subway yeah i know people used to bring books yeah newspapers there was a the the uh, new york times had the newspaper fold right do you know it the newspaper yep. fold yep right and um, nowadays you don't see that yeah so there's a dumbing down it seems to me yeah I've, I've noted uh, there's kind of a breakdown in language too people don't know how to write because they don't read and their communication skills have dumbed down as well maybe, maybe. We're, we're not reading the way we used to we used to read literature on yes <laughs> yeah yes Mm -hmm. So that I really deplore. Now there are some people, I mean, when I was a teacher, anytime I'd call a break, everybody would take out their cell phones. Yeah. And occasionally they would use their cell phones in class and I'd have to, you know, put it into that. Yeah. But one girl who was a particularly good student did that one day when I, after I called a break. And I said, let me ask you, does your hand feel naked when you don't have a cell phone in it? And she thought for a moment, and she said, yeah, mm. yeah, it does. See, so I think that's a dangerous trend. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm curious if... Do you feel there's something that you know at 88 years old that I don't at 32 years old just for sheer experience and having lived a full life? Well, I knew this early on 
And that is, and I'm not referring to you, but you can take it as you want. Okay. That the person you hook up with, the woman you hook up with, has to be your best friend mm. at the same time. Otherwise, it's not going to be good enough. Yeah. I know that. That's a piece of wisdom I know. Uh-huh. When did you and Gloria meet? We met, she was, well, I was 22, she was 20. And we met in camp. We were both counselors. <laughs> and uh, she was my first girlfriend. Wow. I was already 22. Yeah. Um, I was a late starter. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> she had had boyfriends. And what did you guys have then that you still have now? Oh, love, which has only increased. And friendship, I suppose. Well, of course. Built in, yeah. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Do, do you have any particular thoughts or fears about where we're at and where we're headed right now? Well, I think this is a bad time to be born because of the cell phone. Yeah. I, I think people are going to miss out a great deal Yeah. on things. I have a hope that this is a great time to be born if you were born today because I'd like to think this next generation is going to reject a lot of this. And uh, I have you a, think? I have a very optimistic dream that they will see this as something their parents do and silly and they'll really wanna, even though they're given it the when they're in the stroller they Well, that's it? that's that's the thing. That's the tough thing is that it's how no one is immune to how stimulating it is, right? And so if you are introduced a drug as a child, yeah. you will be addicted. But I I have the hope that this young people who are having kids right now, let's say a 20-year-old, you know, a lot of them aren't on Facebook even because they see it as something their parents do and not for them. And and they're, we're getting more and more aware every day of what a, what a plague this thing is in our hands, in our pockets. And I think they're starting to reject it and, and trying to keep their kids away from it. So I've got a I hope you're a, right. A dream of a of a hippie society <laughs> coming up in these next generations. I, I hope so too. But it's hard. It's a very stimulating thing. All this visual stimulation. Yeah. yeah. And it it distorts our relationship to images too. And it, all this content, all these TV shows and movies and Yeah. 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 I agree. Going back to when I was religious, at 20, I quit religion. Really? Yeah. I'd read The Wall by John Hersey. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Which is about the uh, the Polish Warsaw Ghetto. Okay. And in that book, everybody dies equally, whether they're any old Jew or whether they're an ultra-religious Jew. Mm -hmm. And so my personal relationship with God 
was destroyed. Mm. Because I always felt that if I was a good guy and a good Jew, then God would be good to me. Yeah. But of course, that's not the case. No. You know, you can't have a personal God uh, of that kind or of any kind. So that's when I quit cold turkey. Wow. The same day I finished that book, I ate chocolate, chocolate after having eaten meat. Wow. which is a no-no. Right. Wow. <coughs> Milk chocolate. Uh-huh. And <clears throat> so that fills in a little gap there. Yeah. Do, do you regret having left that? In, in, no. No. It's all bullshit. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I, I, I couldn't agree more, but I also question this. I'm not necessarily saying that this is worth all the rest that comes with the religion. But I, I do question if we're not missing a sense of community. You know, some of those things that came along with organized religion that brought yeah. us together, forced us to deal with people we like as much as people we don't like. We had to be, you know, we were we were up in each other's personal space, you know, talking and, and planning things together. And uh, there's communion through music in in... Uh, religious establishments, and I, I just I question how much of that we need to find our way back to community. Yeah, which the phone is also in the way of. Well, sure. I mean, there's always a loss. Yeah. But <clears throat> there's also a big gain, I think. Mm-hmm. So, I find that I don't need it. Yeah. You know, when I decided that I was going to quit, I kept going to synagogue for some weeks. And I kept up the rituals because I wasn't sure whether I could remain a good person mm -hmm. if I weren't bound by these uh, rituals and, and things that we had to do, and, you know. Yeah. But that eased off. I felt I wasn't, it wasn't necessary for me. Yeah. And that's the last time I look back. I, I, uh, uh, I mean, things were forced on, on the community in Washington Heights was forced on us. Yeah, right. We we uh, we didn't create that. It was forced on us. Yeah, and it was a wonderful community. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really was. It seems it, it was. You knew everybody. Mm -hmm. You knew everybody. If if I went from Fort Washington Avenue to Riverside, which was one long block over there, yeah, that went up and down, there would be. Along the way, there would be people in um, little armchairs, what are they, you know, the little aluminum yeah, chairs. Yeah, yeah. All along. Yeah. It took me a half fucking hour to do that block. <laughs> I knew everybody. I had to say hello to everybody. Right, of course. I had to converse with everybody. Yeah. And if I was in a hurry, I'd go four blocks around the way. <laughs> to avoid the to, whole to show. To avoid all those people. <laughs> yeah. But 
when you look back on it, it was so wonderful. It's beautiful now to know everybody and right. to, you know. Now we don't really know our neighbors. Yeah. 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 Or, well, you know, you, you, I go to the beach in Brighton and I see the same phenomenon. I see people in their chairs sure. outside their houses. Yeah. Chatting. Some, some places hold on to it. Yeah. So some people hold on to it. Some yeah. places hold on. There's a big sense of community in Mexico because of the ritual of eating in the street at a fixed lunch hour and right. you're, you're you're sitting around with a bunch of strangers sharing this beautiful yeah. thing that is the food. <laughs> and they play dominoes? There are dominoes in the in some of the cantinas, yeah. That you can they'll just give you a set for free while you drink your drink and eat Yeah, your food. see that's nice. It really I is. like that. I do too. And around here you have it on Amsterdam. Uh huh. In the project. You have the table. Yep. They're always playing dominoes. Yep. Um, and chess down in the parks downtown and yeah yeah um so w once you left religion at 20 you said yes and you hadn't had kids yet is that right no Do i hadn't met my wife okay right oh, of course at 22 you met her yeah so w did you ever feel uh, a lack of of purpose a lack of a sense of purpose I mean, the things that seem to fill that void for people are religion, children, and I suppose art, but you weren't quite there yet with art. You were That's right. a technician. Were you not worried about that yet because you were a young guy? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was vaguely contemplating my future. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, I've got to get off my ass and, and make a film already. Yeah, you know, and because I've got ideas and I want to put these ideas to work, mm -hmm. and I wasn't able to on my commercial job. With those ideas, was it was putting them to work about about sharing them purely, or was it also about working them out for yourself in the process? At the time, before my therapy, <laughs> I thought I could change the world. Okay. With my ideas. I see. So when I made Claw, you know, first of all, okay, first of all, Colossus. Colossus meant for me a rebuff to Ilya Kazan, oh. to his On the Waterfront. Uh-huh. Did you see that film? Oh, yeah. Multiple yeah. times. Um, which is a great film. Yeah. But except for the ending. Yes. Right? In which everybody follows the leader and they're all a bunch of they're all a bunch of wimps. Yeah. Except for Marlon Brando. So all his friends, all his, they all follow him. They're all wimps. And they all and you know Marlon Brando was make I mean Kazan was making this film because of the blacklist, yeah, he was making this film, right, to show, you know, how bad the unions are, right, and so I hated that film, yeah, especially because it was so good. It's particularly frustrating, right, because it's a masterpiece, but <laughs> right, yeah. right, yeah, and you know, later in life, I don't know if you know this, Marlon Brando 
was sorry he made Renounce, this film. Renounced, yeah, yeah. He denounced the film. Yeah. And so I wanted to make a film that uh, showed these as hardworking men, mm -hmm. you know, who brought in this ship and who weren't wimps at all. They were doing their job. They right. Were, right? So that was already the beginning of my egomania. I see, uh-huh. And then, but in Claw, which I had shot before, right, that was really the beginning. And I thought that with Claw, which was about the reduction of the old city mm -hmm. the, for the, the glassed-in city, yeah, you know, and the economic priority, of right? Urban development. That I was making a statement. Yeah, that would ch help Resonate. change the world. Yeah, I was so crazy. <laughs> no. You know, but, I, I but, believed that I had this mission, yeah. and so this is the idealism of youth, though. I mean, this gets a lot of people off their asses. This is why yeah. you got start. You know, yeah, got off your butt and made a movie, right? Right. I made a movie, which is still my favorite. There you go. It's Claw? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Still my favorite of my films. Mm-hmm. I really worked hard on that boy. It, I worked hard on Claw. I was going to say it shows, but it doesn't show. Actually, it feels effortless and right, and yeah, so the work yeah. doesn't show in, a, in the good way. Yeah, I was just, you know, I was asking you about about this sense of purpose topic because you know we have this theory that we're kind of in uncharted territory as a generation us who are not having kids do not have religion you know we're we're kind of floating out there we're a little do you uh, not have religion confused I, I don't and most I mean as a society as a world we have far less religion than ever before and yes. and um so we in our late 20s we start getting a little confused about what the whole life thing is all about and what we're supposed to be doing with ourselves and this leads to a lot of egotism and and uh getting stuck in loops and confusion about obsession over our careers and all these things i think that would always happen yeah andrew i think that would always happen well we we are I looking mean, backward and we're, we we're seeing that we think well Man, maybe the thing to do was to to have a kid at twenty two years old and and ha you know put my energy into this other person's life. But at the same time, we're too selfish for that now. We're we've seen too much. You know, we've done so much for ourselves, and we do all these crazy things and go to these other cities. You know, or do whatever job we want, and we don't we don't have a responsibility to anyone else, which is incredible advantages. So I don't know what. <laughs> I guess I don't know where I'm headed with this. Even I'm just sort of commenting on it. I guess. I. Uh, all in all, looking back, I'm at peace. Yeah. But there was a time, probably at your age, mm -hmm. where I was also wondering where am I going, you know. What am I doing? I was very satisfied in my marriage. Uh huh. I had two lovely boys. Okay. That started before. Started with you, but. Uh, 
had a bout of depression between between short circuit and uh, stations. Okay, so between 73, 78? Yeah. Just doubts and, and confusion? And I made, I did make Bridge High during that time, but it was a minor effort and I remember I was spending day after day sitting on the couch and thinking and being depressed. Yeah. So these ups and downs are going to happen. Okay, that's encouraging. That's the only time it happened uh -huh. to me. Uh, and I've had a very good life. Yeah. I think. And I look back and I'm happy with my films and I'm happy I made them and I never thought I'd make that many and uh, especially because the early going was so slow especially tall 15 years yeah um, so what do you hope happens with your films what do you hope to I don't know yeah I don't know what happens happens mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I've appointed some trustees and I'm gonna have a meeting with them soon to tell them where everything is and what, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope my films last a while after I'm dead. Yeah. Which uh, I think about a lot these days. Mm -hmm. About uh, what will happen with the films or about death? No, no, about their dying. Okay, yeah. Oh, no, I don't think too much about the film. Look, my job is to make films. What happens to them? And that's always been my attitude. Yeah. What happens to them afterwards is either somebody else's job or what will happen will happen. Yeah. You know, and if they all get destroyed, that's okay with me, too. Yeah. You know, I made them. I like them, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but so dying is on your mind lately though. Do you, do you feel yes. every night particularly? Yeah. When I go to sleep. Yeah. Or when I wake up in the middle of the night. My dad died at eighty-eight. Okay. So he died at my age. Yeah. And he was a healthy man all his life. He must have been because to die at eighty-eight back then is no yeah, small in, feat. Nineteen eighty-five. Yeah. So. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, and it's a helicopter. Yeah. Uh, are you at peace with it, or are you? I am. You are, because I, I also see you as excited to keep working. And I am. Yeah. I'm going to make a new film called Daughters in July, in which I'm going to interview women about their mothers. Beautiful. Did I said that already. No. Oh. Beautiful. Yes, and then if I can. I would follow it with a film in which I'd interview men about their fathers. Of course. Provided, yeah, is your father alive? Yes. Oh, then I can't interview you. <laughs> okay. Because you want him. You'll pull your punch. You want him to be honest. Yep, I understand yeah. that and to completely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Interesting. Um, <laughs> I so uh, I guess you're not going to feel frustrated if you go before you can get these finished. No, that's a good place to be. How do you think you got there? How, why do you? But think you it know, is there was a time, like when I was making claw. Yeah, that I I I worried about dying. Really? How you old know, were you then? The, I was in the thirties. <laughs> you know, but uh, you know, I had put so much into that film. Yeah. And then you know every film after that. But then there came a time, like let's say uh, when I made Spray Masters, which was right after Tall. Yeah. When I forgot about that. Mm. Okay, you start it, you make it. If, if it's left behind, it's no big deal. Yeah. How do you think you arrived at this piece with it all? I probably because making a film was so important at the beginning because I never knew if I was going to finish it because it was so hard. Mm -hmm. And then I saw that I did finish it and I had, I had by then I had six or seven films and as far as the body of my work was concerned, I was satisfied. But I wasn't finished making films. I mean, I get up every morning looking forward to going to my computer and working yeah. on a film. Yeah. So I want to continue to make films. But, you know, I don't... I used to say, boy, I made claw, you know. Yeah. But, but when I made... After I made Canners, for example, all right, it's in my library. I made Canners. Yeah, it, I don't feel the same way. Sure. It. Yeah, you're now you're just stacking them up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they have their purpose, but it's not. Uh, yeah, you're not living or dying by their That's right. completion. Okay. Yes, I, I I can look back on a nice body of work. Yep. Agreed. Uh, that's an understatement, but I'll take it. <laughs> well, Manny. This was a pleasure. Thank you for doing this. I know you're a busy man. Working on ah, that's all right. Got four movies on the docket. And <laughs> took a couple <laughs> no. hours to talk to some kid. No. 